what is crackalackin hardwood knocks listeners i am dan valley about to come at you with my fantabulous co-host adam promo but wanted to drop a quick pre-recording so we could address the the nuggets losing tim Connolly to the minnesota timberwolves on a massive deal that news came out after we recorded this this podcast on our biggest question for every western conference lottery team entering the offseason uh, Tim Connolly going to become the president of basketball operations for the Minnesota Timberwolves. He signed a five-year deal worth $40 million, which per the athletic more than doubles his salary with the the Nuggets. And he is also going to get an ownership uh, stake, some equity in the team, which makes him one of the, per the athletic once again, um, you know, just more lucratively compensated executives in the league based on that package. The Nuggets did make a last-ditch attempt, apparently, to keep him. Uh, Woj classified their final offer as making him one of the better paid execs in the league, which is hilariously on brand for the Nuggets to do that. I do think this is this is a big loss for Denver just because Tim Connolly has become known as one of the better um, talent evaluators in the NBA. And just looking at the roster he's put together, I know a lot of people have tried to point out, oh, look how expensive the Denver Nuggets are. I mean, every move that they've made, if you take out injuries, it's it's pretty much a success. You can maybe quibble about their decision to max out Michael Porter Jr. amid his uh, checkered health bill, but having Jamal Murray, Nikola Jokic, Aaron Gordon, Michael Porter Jr., that's a core that should be contending in, in the West next season if it's able to stay even relatively healthy. And I don't think you can argue that any of those moves haven't necessarily worked out just yet. Again, MPJ... Uh, you have to wait and see. But the Aaron Gordon trade, that's an unequivocal success for the Nuggets, in my opinion. He's done a lot of what he was brought in to do. It's just that at times he's been shoehorned into this outsized offensive role and even defensive role when you look at how much time he spent guarding the the point of attack. And you really, the Nuggets, just this front office under Tim Connolly, um, doing a great job of mining talent later in the draft. This isn't just in a Nicole Jokic situation, but you know, having, a, even just most recently, getting Bones Highland, that's a big win. Uh, for them and either a, a trade chip that's going to, in, you know, really glitz up Denver's packages moving forward or someone who might be able just to to grow with the team and give you another building block. This is troubling in the sense that short term, I don't think there's anything wrong with Denver. And I'll wrap up the Nuggets really quick. This is more so about the Timberwolves, really. But long term, this does bring questions. Uh, the Nuggets have, for the most part, always paid their talent and they've the, on the court, and they've shown that with this core, when you look at Jokic, who will probably get the Supermax this summer, um, Jamal Murray, Michael Porter Jr., even extending Aaron Gordon, but they haven't you know, ne- necessarily invested in their top executives. Masai Ujiri leaving for uh, Toronto, uh, and then even Arturis Karnasovas leaving for the Chicago Bulls. Um, at least Karnasovas, I think that, that qualified as a promotion for him, so there's more cover there. Um, but to see Connolly and Masai leave for what are essentially lateral roles with different franchises, and and it's really just money separating them, it's not the best look. There's no salary cap on coaches, front office members, um, to lose them. Someone who's proven that he's great at his job and done really well for you, it's you know it's penny pinching in the the most pointless form because uh, I do think over the the longer course. Denver probably feels this absence. Maybe it's on the margins. Uh, that being said, Calvin Booth will take over the basketball, the head basketball operations role uh, for now. I know a lot of people around the league like him and think that he's done a great job uh, 
right under Tim Connolly. So maybe this is just another situation where uh, they have the next guy step up like it was with Tim Connolly. Now Kevin is going to come in and, and he turns into a fantastic executive and then he'll just go and leave for another team when, when he's able to make more, more money. But I do, again, I think this is more of a loss than some people are sort of crediting. It might not be reflected immediately in the record, but there's a chance down the line. We're sort of looking at this as a weird, not just a pivot point, but just a missed opportunity or uh, sort of some self-inflicted, you know, harm that the Nuggets did did to themselves. For the Timberwolves, I, I love it. I just like that they were so aggressive to the extent that they offered this much money to one of the bigger executive names uh, in the league. Uh, the ownership stake, that, that equity, that is no small commitment. And so to go that route, it does show that they were devoted to making this huge splash. And you bring in Tim Connolly, uh, I think people are probably wondering, well, how does this work? They just signed, you know, sort of signed Chris Finch. Uh, he has a working relationship with Chris Finch in the past. So that should help. And I think all the reporting, and this happens all the time when a team hires a, an executive when a coach is all, already in place. But the reporting is that uh, Tim Connolly is perfectly happy to have Chris Finch there. But I do think it helps that they just have a more, that they have a closer working relationship that I feel like most, it's not tangential. Like these two were with the same organization, sort of with the same era when you're looking at the work that Chris Finch did with uh, the Denver Nuggets. So I do think that's a plus there. Uh, you also just look at what Minnesota is trying to do, and they're they're attempting to figure out a way to go from the middle or sub-middle of the Western Conference to that next level. You need to get creative to do that. You're not going to have cap space this summer. Um, you need someone who might be open to or might be able to be more aggressive on the trade market or is going to be, I don't want to say smarter, but as proven that he'll be able to go into the draft um, in the in the ensuing years. And even if you don't have a high pick, you might be able to mine talent out of whatever spot that you're in. Um, and that could start this year for the Timberwolves, of course. Uh, and then just looking at the free agency stuff, um, there could come a time where they, they are a little bit more flexible. They have D'Angelo Russell coming off the books after this year. Um, but I also think that, and most recently, Chris, um, Chris Finch, excuse me, Tim Connolly has shown in Denver that if he believes that the the missing piece, the missing player is out there, he will go get him. The Nuggets mortgaged, I don't say, want to say quite a bit of their future, but they gave up real appreciable value for Aaron Gordon. Again, I don't think that's a trade that you regret, but he he made the call midseason. And so he does feel like he has experience taking a team to that next step through these all different forms. And you might probably just like what he and his front office in Denver have done from a draft perspective and, and mining some of those talents on the margins, Minnesota could use that. Uh, and I, I think more than anything though, just because we can't guarantee how free agency ever plays out, how they structure their books, you can't even guarantee what's going to be available on the trade market. Did the Timberwolves go out now and trade for Jeremy Grant because they have Tim Connolly? No, that's not really going to be uh, the difference for them. I think the message that it sends though, just to the league, to the fans and what it says about how the Timberwolves look like they're going to conduct themselves uh, in the in the final days, years of Glenn Taylor being in control and having Mark Moore and, and Alex Rodriguez um, as sort of the, the the governors of the franchise. It does show that this is a team that's going to continue to sort of double down and chase the the bigger, splashier hires, acquisitions when it comes to free agency trades. So yeah, overall, I think it's tough to even come up with an argument to dislike this move. 
for the Timberwolves. I don't think it all of a sudden puts them on a map in a way that they didn't. I just think it really proves a level of creativity um, and aggression that they're going to need if they want to sort of make this jump around Carl Anthony Towns and Anthony Edwards to the upper echelon of the Western Conference. And they'll be fascinating to watch immediately. You know, they have the number 19 pick, they have some interesting trade pieces on their team, and they have the incentive uh, to really go after it. And I don't think that Tim Conley's necessarily tasked with coming in and blowing anything up or going out and getting that third star immediately. I think this is just an organization that um, clearly wants to put its stamp on the Western conference. And it feels like by hiring Tim Connolly, they've set themselves up to have more ways of, of doing that just based off the track record that he's shown in Denver. Let's dive into the full podcast though, before we get started, the, the final quick reminder to please rate review and subscribe to this podcast. If you've not done so already, if this is your first time around these parts, consider throwing us that full, um, that permanent subscription. We do not think you'll regret it. Uh, if you've done, if you've rated, reviewed, and subscribed to us, please consider telling other people about us, friends, family members, acquaintances, random people on the internet who you know like basketball. Help us by retweeting some of the promos. Anything that you can do to help us grow the wonderful community that we have built at Hardwood Knox and are trying to keep growing. Also, follow us on all the, the social media channels, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter. The links and handles are in our podcast description. Also, check out our YouTube channel youtube.com search hard we're not will come up and finally join our discord come have some conversations with us the link to that is in the podcast description as well with all that out of the way let's talk with adam about our biggest questions for every western conference lottery team hello everyone and welcome to the latest episode of hardwood Knox. this is adam frommel here with my always fantastic co-host dan favalli We've got four teams left in the NBA playoffs, and naturally everyone is talking about those four teams, so naturally we're not going to. Instead, we're going to give some attention to the Western Conference lottery teams. We're running through the seven squads that did not have a chance to play any postseason basketball and trying to come up with the single biggest offseason question. It can be anything at all. With these exercises, we do typically try to stay away from the, the classic, who should they draft with pick X questions, because those are just a little bit too much low-hanging fruit. Uh, I also did not run that by Dan, so I'm hoping that he actually stayed away from those as we, as we usually do, but we'll, we'll find out live. Uh, before we get to any of those questions, though, I have the single most important one of the episode, and that's how's it going, Dan? I am doing well, thanks for asking. I did, in fact, ignore sort of who are they going to draft at X spot. Also only fair because we recorded the, the Eastern Conference part of this before the draft lottery. And since we just couldn't record the one until the West until after the lottery, it's it's only right that we continue by that. So we're not ignoring the super obvious, but the whole, oh, who is OKC going to draft at number two is not going to be at play here. How are you doing? I am good. Always a ton of stuff going on, but enjoying watching playoff basketball. And it's it's just a fun time of year to be a sports fan in general, just with so many big events happening in so many different sports. Uh, yeah, and uh, the NBA playoffs have certainly been a trip of content, especially if you're a Patrick Beverly fan, which I am not. Yeah, that was uh, that was something. I don't know what that something is, but something we don't need to focus on, I would think. So that's we fair. Cannonball into this this lottery team exercise. That is fair. Yeah, we're gonna go alphabetically. So we'll start with the Houston Rockets. Um, I feel like you can ask a ton of questions about this team just because it's a roster that's in so much flux. 
I want to fo- I wanted to focus on whether they're willing to extend Kevin Porter Jr. and or Jay Sean Tate. Porter's able to receive up to $184 million in an extension. Tate would be around $60 million. Obviously, those are big numbers. And you know, they're not going to get the full scope of those extensions. But if they do come to terms, how much would it be for? And are they even going to come to terms? Because beyond Jalen Green, I don't know who Houston views as a true building block for whatever the next competitive iteration is, which is why I'm focusing on these two guys, because they're candidates, even if Porter is coming off a pretty disappointing season, and even if Tate is ultimately limited to more of like a higher end role player ceiling. Do they view these guys as long-term pieces for the organization? Yeah, that's a, that's a fantastic question. And uh, the extension specifically are, are tough because what do you want to give Kevin Porter Jr. knowing that he's not, we've seen it, like, but him at point guard is not the answer. He's probably best off as sort of a microwave player off the bench. I think Jason Tate has a ton of value for his defense. And we know that these wing types, uh, even if they're not the best shooters or the best offensive players, they're going to get some money in free agency. And so I could see numbers where, or the justification behind drawing a line in the sand and saying, if they're willing to sign for X, we'll keep them. But you're also so early into your rebuild that you don't want to lock yourself into any deals that are, that are too steep. Uh, And I would be curious as to who they value more moving forward between those two. And I agree with what you said about, Jalen Green kind of being the only tentpole prospect. Alperin Shangun probably comes closest, but does that change with, you know, we said we weren't going to reference the draft, but they're in a spot to take one of the three bigs that are viewed as the consensus top prospects in these drafts. How does that change Alperin Shangun's um, value to this team, his future trajectory with this team? Still, those two players, and you have the unknown in Usman Garuba. Like, yeah, there's, there's long-term uh, foundation pieces here, but... I don't think that Tate or Porter Jr. is necessarily one of them. I think this is more so a matter of, oh, if you can get them cheap enough and they can help us, or these are deals that they can be moved later and they're actually more helpful at a more expensive number than these sub $2 million salaries they're working on right now or sub $4 million in KPJ's case, that could be a value play for them. I have to admit that I totally misfired on KPJ. I thought that uh, going into this, this season – I thought he was just going to explode, actually be the answer to that point guard question. Couldn't have been more wrong. It didn't work. And then I mean, it's, and that's not supposed to be his game either. And I think it's, you know, he might be more useful to them knowing what we saw from Jalen Green over the second half of the season. I don't think Jalen Green's a primary initiator type, but maybe he can be your 1B. And so now you just have to focus on finding more of a floor general to go with him. And you can still have room for someone like, KPJ I just I don't know what the number is that you'd feel like if if he wants you know mid-level money in his extension or you're giving it to him 11 12 million dollars a year yeah I think you would I probably would uh Jay Sean Tate who do you view is more valuable to them though between those two I think KPJ ultimately is because of the ceiling where I just I think that's a few levels higher Tate, while a good role player who can fill a bunch of different roles, provides energy, provides enthusiasm and intensity, like that's the easier role to go out and find on the cheap. It's harder, it's harder to find a cheap version of what Porter does in theory, in theory. But I think you're still at a stage of this rebuilding process where you can feasibly chase that upside, knowing that it could backfire. I just wonder if not having a building block wing 
on the team, maybe aside from Tate. Uh, Garuba's not a wing. Garrison Matthews isn't really a wing. Uh, I, I just don't – like, you have Jalen Green. I'm just wondering if that factors into it at all and knowing even if you have KPJ, you're going to have to go out and find someone else who can be a primary ball handler mm-hmm. anyway if that sort of diminishes his long-term utility to, to this squad. It definitely could. And, and really, either of those – Either, either of these players could go either way. I, I, it's, a, it's a good question, I think. I don't have an answer because Houston could very feasibly go in, in any direction with these players. If I had to guess, I would say Tate's more likely to get an extension than KPJ. I don't think either. Just because of the numbers, right? Right. And I, I, don't think that, I don't think that either of them get extensions personally. But, they, I mean, who am I to say anything? My question for them is, are they going to move Gordon and or Wood this offseason and then you can throw or you can fold John Wall into that. I still think $47.3 million salary that's going to end in a buyout unless the Lakers decide uh, they want to give up a pick with Russ for John Wall, which makes zero sense for them. In my opinion, I think I'd be curious to see who has more value around the league. It's probably would just because he's younger and he's more of an anomaly at his position offensively, but Eric Gordon was really good this year, man. And just the rim pressure he puts on the shooting, someone who can hold up, defensively Uh, yes he's getting older yes he's has had his injury issues yes he has that non-guaranteed 20.9 million dollar salary for 23 24 you happily pay that salary if he makes an Mm -hmm. all-star team or you win a championship so i get it why would though would be more appealing especially where they are though in the draft order now i'm not a big fan of drafting for fit this early in the process or building your team necessarily for fit but when you have Shangun and it's really time to uncork Aruba and you're about to get one of those three bigs and you know that Christian was going to command, he's extension eligible too. He's going to command a ton of money or at least more money than he's making right now, probably if he gets the free agency and that you really shouldn't be bankrolling that next deal. He feels like the guy that should absolutely be moved because it's less egregious. If you just look, if you house Eric Gordon for the rest of the season and kind of just let him come off your books. Uh, I think he's might technically be the more useful player in a lot of circumstances, but it feels like you can get more compensation for Christian Wood. And so you might as well just go out and, and get that compensation whilst you can. Totally agree. But I feel like we're going to see both players moved. And I say that knowing full well that I was downright shocked that Eric Gordon wasn't moved at this past trade deadline. He seemed like maybe the most obvious player to be on the move just because of what he brings to the table as a guy who can put pressure on the rim, a guy who can you know, feasibly launch away from a foot or two beyond the three-point arc, a guy who played pretty pesky on-ball defense. And he was ready to, to, to go to work for a contender, it seemed. And for him to stay in Houston was, was pretty shocking. Uh, for the same reasons, I don't expect him to remain. Plus, Jalen Green's second-half breakout. You know, the ball is going to be in his hands even more. If they do keep KPJ, they're going to want the ball in his hands too. So it feels like there's an even smaller role in store for Gordon if he stays. So I would think they're going to get something for him, knowing that, you know, if he's on the roster, like, sure, he might speed along the development of some of these younger guys, but he's not going to be contributing to a playoff team. Yeah. I mean, that's a great point as well. I don't know how much, uh, like, do you want a strong veteran presence in the locker room? Again, it seemed like Eric Gordon wanted to suit up for a contender too. And so he actually just might be the more likely to get moved by virtue of his age and how counter to the, the quote unquote timeline, uh, how, how much he runs counter to that for Houston. And also look, they have Josh Christopher who gave him some nice minutes too. 
And who knows what they could end up. Look, if they bring Dennis Schroeder back or if they wind up with, you know, getting someone else out of the draft or an, un, you know, an undrafted free agent that they signed, or they want to give more reps to, they might just decide to go the all-in youth route or uh, organically just having other options. So you kind of talk me into Eric Gordon being more likely to get moved. I think both of them should be because J- Christian was not someone you look to as like the steadying veteran leadership presence anyway. So I think you should be fine to get rid of him, especially when I don't know. I think bigs of his caliber might be a little bit more in demand than we think because of the way we've seen playoff teams play where it's not necessarily downsizing, but you have bigs who can play a smalls game on offense and defense. Christian Wood cannot do the latter, but he can certainly do the former. And so a team like Charlotte, um, would they be willing to give up real, real value to get him, even though he doesn't stabilize their defense? Uh, maybe the fact that I'm, I can't like just rattle off a bunch of different suitors for him off the top of my head uh, speaks to that. His value might be lower than we actually think, but given how, just given how anomalous to use the word again, mm-hmm. his offensive skill set is at his position. If you're going to use him at the five, uh, it just feels like there'll be a team where you're going to get more than just a first round pick for him. Yeah. If you had to bet which of them or both or none gets traded. I'm just going to say both. Yeah. I think that that's where I'm at too. There's going to be enough top end talent in Houston now too. When you look at this year's pick Jalen green to say, okay, like we can just turn the keys over sort of what OKC did. And like our veteran presences are going to be a Derek favors or a Mike Muscala, like a much cheaper person yeah. than, um, than an Eric Gordon or, or Christian Wood, especially because it's going to be a veteran who doesn't have the leverage to want out. I think Eric Gordon's good enough to want out in true hardware Knox fashion though. We have already gone two minutes over our, time limit on this team so do you want to take us to the next one next up we have the los angeles clippers my question for them is kind of simple can you run back a team that went 42 and 40 but couldn't make it through the plan tournament you know the obvious confounding variable there is health because had paul george been fully healthy all year had Kawhi leonard been available at all they're probably not finding themselves in that situation those health concerns aren't going away this is ultimately an older roster that is only going to keep getting older and doesn't really have that, that potential breakout young guy, nor does it have any cap space to go out and get anyone of significance. If you're looking to run it back, you're probably going to have to give Nick Batum a new contract. He has a $3.3 million player option that he's likely going to turn down. You're going to have to pay Isaiah Hardenstein. You're going to have to pick up Vika Zubac's contract as a team option. So there, you can bring back the entirety of this core and see what happens, but is it worth it? Yeah, I mean, this feels like a no-brainer. Yes, like who is the core piece that you're moving from this team? And you why can move we, Morris, maybe. I don't consider him. See, I, that's where I guess we sort of diverge. Would be I don't consider. I'm looking at PG Kawhi, Norman Powell, and that's like you know probably a Vita Zubac needs to be there as well, and. I, I just, everything points towards them running it back in some form because they already extended Robert Covington. And that's part of the reason I went this route is because their off season's basically already done. Like they're going to make small moves here and there, but like what, what is the big question? If not, whether it's worth running it back because their hands are essentially tied here. Yeah. I mean, they're going to have the uh, mini mid-level to use and I would anticipate them using that just based off how, Steve Ballmer is spent and this dovetails with my actual question for them, but what sort of happens with some of their own free agents and Robert Covington's obviously removed from that, but Nicholas Batum as a player option. It feels like there's some quid pro quo there because he resigned at 
you know, they were able to resign him using non-bird rights last year, something I didn't anticipate being possible. And if he declines the player option, they now have his early bird rights, so they can pay him above the league average salary, which is quite substantial. At the same time, now that you have Robert Covington, now that you have Norman Powell, um, you have Terrence Mann, even Amir Coffey, who's a restricted free agent and was just quietly really good. For teams that are operating with sort of a beggar's dime, he would be someone to go after. Um, you have him. Does that at all sort of change the calculus of how you're fleshing out your ring, wing rotation? Uh, also, Isaiah Hartenstein, great pickup by them. I still can't believe that he wasn't on a roster to start the year. Really good passer, solid rim protector. I don't want to say he has stretched to his game, but he can pop. And then he's also just, you don't look at him as this explosive finisher, but he can catch and finish above the rim. It's not these, you know, highlight real dunks, but he can do all of those things. And so I'm very curious to see how they prioritize some of their, maybe they bring all their own free agents back, but they're going to need their mini mid level, at least I would think to keep Hartenstein at this point. Um, and then are you going to pay Nick Batum? That would probably mean that coffee's out the door. So one of those guys is probably gone. If all of them are back, I mean, good for the Clippers. But then I'm also kind of wondering, I think there's an, it's overstated how much this team needs a floor general, but they could definitely use a connective passer or someone who could get them into their slower sets. Just because right now you are so reliant on Reggie Jackson, Paul George, and Kawhi Leonard. And then you do have some secondary guys like a Luke Kennard off the dribble. Even Terrence Mann we saw. Norman Powell is going to give you rim pressure. But I'm talking about if you really need to slow it down and go through the motions, they don't really have anyone who's going to do that outside of Paul George and Kawhi. And I think you could argue that neither of those two is. Again, those are very good. You know, They could be 1A playmakers, but they're not. Yeah, there's just a difference between a floor general. And I'm not saying they need a Ricky Rubio, someone with that type of command over the game, but are they going to go and tr out and try and find a player like that? And maybe Ricky Rubio can be picked up on a bargain because he's coming back from that ACL injury, just someone who could give you spot minutes in those situations or fill in the gaps when you have players missing games. And when it's Paul George and Kawhi Leonard, the latter specifically, there's going to be missed games there. And so I've thought just based off the salaries that they have, could they be a team that sort of enters the running for a, a Mike Conley on the trade market. I know a lot of people think he's cooked. He was really good this past season. He's had some issues the past two postseasons. You slot him into the Clippers team. It's just, it's a whole different world compared to where he's in Utah. Or can they get someone, this entails using your mini mid level, and I don't know what that means for Hartenstein. Can you get a DeLon Wright? That feels a little too cheap for DeLon Wright. He was really good for Atlanta this year. But that's the type of things I'm thinking about. It feels like this team, I don't want to say needs, like a triple or a home run, but maybe a double. It can't be a single and it can't be fully, it could be fully running it back and they might be the favorites, but you are still in a precarious situation should that happen. Um, but what I'm laying out invariably probably comes at the expense of some of your own free agents, most notably Coffee and Hartenstein. If you let Hartenstein walk, I know bigs can be replaced on the cheap. The value he brought is just not something you're probably going to luck into a second time on a minimum contract. And to your point about his stretchiness, I also think that gets a little bit overlooked. He went 19 of 34 on shots from 10 to 16 feet. Didn't take a single long two beyond 16 feet, but went 14 of 30 on three pointers. So small sample sizes, but 55.9% on that longer mid range on that shorter mid range zone. And then 46.7% from beyond the arc. Is it sustainable and scalable? Probably not, but there's something there. And uh, the thing with him too and it, I'm not, this is not just like me being with the, the benefit of hindsight here. I thought, and I think we had this conversation between the two of us already. Uh, I thought that he did enough when he was with Cleveland in the preceding season to warrant an NBA contract. And then he did a lot of the same things, just 
in more volume with the Clippers. And look, he's not the most mobile rim protector, but opponent shot 47.5% against him at the rim. That was the stingiest mark this year among 163 players to challenge at least 150 of those shots at the rim. And he's also his assist rate among all centers who average at least 15 minutes or more per game, 19.3 assist rate that ranks sixth at the position. That is the look, man. He's surrounded by good players, but you want your centers to be able to make those, right. those passes. And he's just, I think the point that you really ended up making, whether you meant to or not, is he's just one of the more versatile role playing bigs that you're going to be able to find. And so losing him isn't nothing, especially with Zubats is in the final year of his contract now, all of a sudden. And so it's like, what are you doing? I know you want to downsize a lot, but I think you still need one more big on this team where if it's Zubats and Hartenstein, okay, you're set, done. You're fine. Cause you could downsize when you want play big when you want, but if you lose Hartenstein, or even if maybe some people think they should trade Zubats and keep Hartenstein, it's not really, that's not really an option unless Hartenstein can come back for your mini mid level or less. Uh, but like I, they will still need a big if one of those two is gone. So they do still have, the, I guess, a relatively boring offseason, but it could be fascinating to me, at least on the margins. Yeah, on the margins, for sure. But just fewer, like, big, big decisions to make than we see from a lot of teams heading and into the offseason. I'm not going to give Steve Bomber a pat on the back for paying the tax this past season. They did cut their bill with the Serge Ibaka trade. But they, I like the fact that they took on money while planning ahead for this mm-hmm. season with the Norman Powell trade and Robert Covington. And by the way, I've said this like 80 times in the podcast, Portland not getting a first round pick this year while giving up Nance, McCollum, Covington, and Norman Powell at it's the same deadline. It's That's, not great. No, it's not great. They're not next up though. Who is next up? Next up is the other Los Angeles team. That would be the Lakers who, yes, were a lottery team this season. Um, Can we just agree that we probably have the the same question. I have a second one in my back pocket. Is is the question, what do you have to give up to move Russell Westbrook? Right. Or what is the Russell Westbrook trade that's out right. there? And it's not even, I, I don't even the care way, about The way I actually phrased it was, are they actually willing to move Russell Westbrook? <laughs> are they at, well, look, they seems like they've been laying the breadcrumbs that maybe they're not going to do that. I'm sure you saw the report from the I Athletic. Think it feels like they're just trying to save face. Right. Like, because it's going to be hard to move him without attaching a sweetener. $47.1 million for a player who looks like pretty washed. And it's just, even if he's not, he's still very hard to fit into a larger ecosystem. We've just yes. we've seen it three times now. And maybe even four, if you count some of those latter seasons in OKC. So I don't know what the move is, is out there. And I think, I think people- they give up like a, a 3,074 first round pick. That's their next available, right? Yeah, roughly. And look, I, I get that people say there is value in their, the picks that they can give up, which if we're going to include swaps, which I would because they have so little, 26 and 28, they can swap. 27 and 29, they can actually trade. I get the idea that you're looking at this team now and thinking, oh, four or five years down the line, imagine controlling their first round picks. I'm not saying that everything is always going to work out for the Lakers. They fell ass backwards into LeBron James by just ensuring they had cap space. That's and you need to give them credit for drafting the players they did, putting them in the position to, you know, Anthony Davis wanted to go there, but they're which package. which players are we giving them credit for here? I mean, look, Brandon Ingram, those are good yeah, players yeah. at Lonzo Ball that they drafted. The Lakers have done so, a phenomenal job of drafting players who are only good when they leave the Lakers. Well, but even like, I actually think that they've done a better job than advertised on the like Alex Caruso should be more of a oh, I know. I'm, I'm mostly being facetious here, right? And then all, even Austin Reeves is like they're if you look at their players who are under contract for next season, 
like forget the picks. It's Austin Reeves is their most attractive <laughs> trade asset. I'm not even. I mean, you can say LeBron or AD, but if being realistic of players they would move, it's not none. It's not Talon Horton Tucker. It's definitely Stanley, not Stanley Johnson's a team option, and then there's there's fucking Austin Reeves. Like, <laughs> hey, don't overlook Wenyon Gabriel. Uh, I'm going to. He's very he's hustle incarnate. I, I really but, like watching him actually. Uh, he was closing games for the Lakers by season's end. So could, I'm not sure whether that says more about Wenyon Gabriel or the state of the Lakers. Let's just let's agree that it says both. Let's not dismiss what he That's does. Fair. And he had some really nice moments in New Orleans uh, last season. That's why I liked watching him so much. But. What I was saying, though, before I derailed us entirely, those <laughs> picks in the distance, they're attractive in theory, but there's the risk that what happened with LeBron happens again with the Lakers mm-hmm. uh, this time around again. The other thing is also what front office has the job security to say, we're going to take on this money, even if it's for a year, and we're also going to give up someone or some ones that can help the Lakers. Maybe they're not super good. Maybe they're on like less than desirable contracts, but they're still more valuable than Russell Westbrook on those deals. What front office has the job security to say the only return? We're not going to see a return on this this deal until 2026, 2027 at the earliest. What front office has that job security? Maybe OKC, anyone in San Antonio, sure, fine. Masai in Toronto. Yeah. Just like, should we say Tim Tim Connolly in Minnesota or is that too soon? Oof. Too soon. Okay. So by the time this releases, it might not be too soon. But since we're recording this, like, a few hours after that news. Uh, so, yeah, I don't, I just don't think what the Lakers can do. With a, and the most popular one has been floated Brogdon healed for Westbrook and those Lakers picks. Okay, sure. But like, what are, you're not getting anything imminent if you're in Indiana. And yeah, I just, I don't even understand the incentive to give up anyone of value if you're the other team. Like, why, why would you move Brogdon there? What leverage do the Lakers have? Like, you're giving us this awful contract and a pick way down the road that might not actually be this good. Let us, let us give you this good player. I think it's the only reason, and this isn't specific to the Pacers is that Brogdon's extension kicks in next season. You don't want to pay the balance of it. Russ is done in one shot. Maybe you save a little money on top of the buyout this season. It's over cap space does not mean the same to about 25 to 26 teams in the NBA as it does to the other four or five. And that's why if it's the Knicks and they're looking to get off Randall, Fournier, there's, there seems like there's framework there. The Knicks just don't think like that because they are just – they're an archaic franchise. I'm sorry. They, they've had some hits in the draft. R.J. Barrett is good. Your IQ takes remain terrible. Um, Quentin Grimes is intriguing. Like Deuce McBride, intriguing as well. And look, Alec Burks, nice find. I think people were too hard on him this season. But like the Knicks don't think like that. And so I don't know what the market is for him. And I also think because you're the Lakers – you can't view this as just addition by subtraction. Russell Westbrook is not getting you cap space. So if you're attaching first round picks to Russ and just getting nothing in value of return, you're now still tasked with fleshing out the rest of your roster on a beggar's dime, which I think is really the only other question here is how do they properly flesh out the roster here? Because as of right now, they're going to have, I'm going to say the mini mid-level and that they're going to be too close to the apron to even use the biannual. So you have the mini mid-level, 6.4 million, and then the rest of your roster on minimums you need to hit on all of those signs, like most of those signings. And you need all to hit, you need to hit on your mini mid level this year because you whiffed on it last year with Kendrick Nunn. And looming over all this, by the way, Malik Monk, you don't have his bird rights. And so if he wants to come back for the mini mid level, fine. He was valuable. He's probably worth it. Your mini mid level is gone. Gone. If he signs for less than the mini mid level, I want an investigation 
lodged into what was going on there. That feels like super quid pro quo, even more egregious than the Nick Batum instance, just because he is so young, passed up a chance to probably make a little bit more elsewhere. Neither here nor there on that. But I'm just curious to see what they do. Is there still the, like, is there an appeal to taking a little bit less with the Lakers or to, to contend? Because can you even guarantee you're contending? No, absolutely not. I, I don't understand what the motivation is going to be for the veterans this time around. Like last, last off season, they could at least operate under the guise that this is going to be a competitive roster. It's not, it's just not like, if you want to play with LeBron and, and 40 games of Anthony Davis, awesome. Right. And look, the thing that might help them, because I don't want to, it is still LA. It is still LeBron and AD because so much of the league is working with less than like even the full mid-level exception of flexibility when the money's equal, I do think compared to most organizations and I'm be honest here, I love Toronto and fantastic franchise. If Toronto and LA are offering the same or comparable money, right. LA is going to win that battle. And so that will help them, but they need to, the front office needs to hit on these signings and it, you know, novel concept. And I know you agree. I think they should probably target shooting and defense in complementary capacities around LeBron and AD. What was that? Shooting and defense. Complementary shooting. You and said defense. you said what in defense? Uh, ball dominant playmaking, non shooters who play on one side of the floor. And okay, cool. That's older. that's what Done. I thought because we're still on the Lakers, right? We haven't moved on to the Thunder. We probably should. I think that's the final thought. It's just like sign a bunch of old guys who need the ball. Need right. Are going to be in outside roles. Play one side of the floor. That okay, sense. cool. I just want to make sure we're on the same page. Let's move on to the next team. Oklahoma City Thunder. I feel like this question could just be copied and pasted into every offseason for the foreseeable future because it's, is this the offseason they move the timetable up? The Thunder have 35 total draft picks through 2028. And last I checked, there are not 38 roster spots on an NBA team. So there are consolidation moves coming. They have set themselves up fantastically to make that big move for whichever star becomes available. Is it going to be Bradley Beal? Is it going to be someone new, someone we haven't even even fathomed is going to be available this offseason? But someone, because it happens every year, is going to become unexpectedly available. What if it's Zion Williamson? What if it's Julius Randle because he decides he wants to be a star again? whoever it is is this the time that the thunder decide hey let's actually go win some games now we have Shea Gilgis Alexander we have Josh Giddy we have a bunch of intriguing pieces around them let's cash in some of the chips and still have more chips than anyone else at the table so I think that's a fair question it's I feel like we're too soon on it and I also feel like they're not going to do it mostly because Sam Presti came out and said that that's not how they're going to operate. And I know he could be lying, but oh, they're going to get more picks. Oh, for like, but 100%. I percent they're going to have 45 draft picks through 2029 by the end of the off season. And is it going to be a situation where, so they have number 12 in addition to number two in this draft, are they drafting and stashing at number 12 or are they, we've seen them do this before. Are they trading that pick for another pick <laughs> down the road? We've seen Look, we've seen them do it before. So that's a fantastic question. And look, even this summer, the body count is up there. I say body count like people are dying. That's a terrible phrasing. I apologize. The roster count is up there already. Derek Favors already opted in. I know Mike Muscala has a team option, but like he was pretty good for them. And so you pick up that $3.5 million option, I would say. You're guaranteeing Kenrick Williams' contract. Lou Dort's team option is getting picked up. You're guaranteeing Aaron Wiggins' deal. 
And so like there are maybe one or two players, um, Teo Maladon or like, I just, you're still, and you're, you have two picks in the first, is it two or three? The two picks in the first round of, of I think it's like draft. seven, right? Yeah. <laughs> so like, you're going to get to 15 bodies pretty quickly when you're looking, yes, you can carry more in training camp, yada, two way deals, yada, yada, yada. But you're going to get to the roster max pretty quickly. There's going to have to be some smaller scale consolidation here. And I thought it was interesting. It doesn't matter anymore because they're going to wind up with one of those three bigs in the draft. Uh, I thought it was interesting that Woj linked them to DeAndre Ayton because they don't even have cap space this summer. Just they have that Shea Gildas Alexander's extension kicking in and you have Kemba's dead money on the books. So like, are they the team that I don't think they would do this, but like, are you just going to start wave? Like, are they just going to wave Derek favors to create a roster spot and deal with that 10 plus million dollars in dead money? Maybe they wave and stretch him. Like, I, I don't know, but I'm with you that they need to figure that out. My question for them initially, when I thought we were going to do this before the lottery was how are they going to fill like the big man spot? Because I think SGA and Josh Giddy need, I don't want to say a true big, but like someone other than Mike Muscala, who, you know, he doesn't need to pop off screens, but like right. a rim roller. And Jeremiah right. Robinson Earl was good this year, but I don't want him having a monopoly on the center minutes. They're going to get that now. Um, my other question would just be, I think it's just in line with yours, is what moves are they going to make independent of the draft? And is that, are they going to trade for someone? Are they going to facilitate a trade where maybe, you know, look, we talk about Russell Westbrook. It wouldn't be the worst thing in the world for them to get in on that as part of a, you know, be the third team. I just don't know what money you give up. So that's a really bad example. Uh, but are you going to just, they don't have the money matching to go out, but are you going to try and consolidate a different way where it's these smaller scale moves this year? Um, do we see them explore? And this is what I'm getting at. It might be a spicy take. Are you exploring the market for mm. uh, a Darius Baisley? Are you exploring the market for even a Lou Dort at this point? Because he's headed into the contract year. And I know this is a callous way to think about it. Are you paying him long-term? I think, the only person I'm prepared to say is a tentpole cornerstone is Shea Gilders Alexander. And I don't mean an offense to Josh Giddy for that. His sub 50 true shooting percentage concerns me. He's a fantastic passer, solid defender at his position, good size, solid rebounder. I don't see the, the, the long-term vision with him and SGA. I really don't. And maybe it just naturally unfolds to where if you're surrounding them with um, complementary star types or, or, blue chip building blocks like one of these big men that are coming out of the draft that there's some organic fit there with some extra staggering i'm just only prepared i would be more prepared to say whoever they draft plus sga are the temple mm. prospects is everybody else on the table um, i'm just i don't think it's going to be the consolidation for a star but i am interested to see what other transaction or moves they're going to make here on the margins to free up spots or even playing time for some of these uh, incoming players that some we don't even know. Forget the two first round picks that they have. Like they're they're gonna make other moves on the margins. That's what they do. Well, if it only takes Precious Achiwa and OG Ananobi to get Zion Williamson, <laughs> I'm glad you saw that. The YouTube comments for Hardwood Knox are always an adventure. Go follow us on YouTube. Subscribe. But yeah, I think OKC and look if they wanted to go all like in like you said, they're an interesting sign and trade destination. I agree with you though that this isn't the off season. It's, uh, it doesn't feel right from a, a roster timing standpoint or from a player availability standpoint. I look, all they need to do is keep Poku and play him 40 minutes a game and they'll be fine. He's the there other blue go. chip cornerstone. If I was clear on that, I actually think that Poku is going to be absurdly good besides the point. Who's our next team. Next up, we have the Portland trailblazers or at least what is left of them. <laughs> uh, my, my question here is just, is a quick turnaround feasible because they've made, 
their intentions quite clear, that they're trying to do one of the simultaneous teardown scale-ups, except they've messed up at like every step of the process. So they have a bunch of flexibility to do what exactly. This year's free agent class is actively awful. They aren't set up to add much of anything in the draft. So we're ultimately left looking at like a five-man group of Damian Lillard, Anthony Simons, assuming he's re-signed, Yusuf Nurkic, assuming he's re-signed, Josh Hart and Nasir Little. Yay. Like, is that enough to make any noise in the West? I don't, it feels like even their best case outcome of the off season is going to be more of a lateral move. If yeah. not, still a regression. And look, my, my question is kind of similar in that. What are they doing with the, the number seven pick? And it's more so who are they trading it for? And if you're not trading that pick at all, is Dame actually on board with this rebuild? He looked pretty crestfallen when they, when they fell to number seven in the, in the lottery. And look, I'm going to be honest right now. I know Pistons fans think that they're getting the number seven pick for Jeremy Grant. If the Blazers do that, that is going to be a significantly damaging move to their future. Jeremy Grant's a very good player, not super old. You're mortgaging a huge, is there has, I don't even know what the other moving parts of that deal would be, but it would be a basketball catastrophe if that's what you're turning the seventh pick into. And and I know that these draft picks are more like ambiguous appeal than anything. It's the, it's the allure of who it could turn into. And then all of a sudden they'll draft someone and it won't be as valuable. Is it Shane Sharp? Is it Keegan Murray? Whoever at the same time, like it's at least a viable younger, like prospect around whom you can potentially build to punt on that flyer for Jeremy Grant. I even in a bad draft class. And I, look, it, right. And I don't even, I don't even think this draft class, I'm only like a little bit higher than Shin Deep. I said this on the previous podcast into draft prep. I'm like kind of not like, like I'm in on this draft class, not as much as last year's. I think we like, see a lot of role players, which is valuable. I just don't know that you get like building blocks. Well, here's the thing. Jeremy Grant is closer to role player than star. And yep. you're going to give him the four yep. year one. Oh, I'm, I'm on board with you. I'm just, I'm giving the caveat that this is all true. Even with this being a weak draft class. I was going to throw to you to ask, what do you think of the idea? And this is just operating on the assumption that, because look, you have Damian Millard, who is age 32, correct? You are you have to move this pick if you want. Like, there's no, oh, Dame's going to be in this for another two or three years and then we'll be good. No, 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 no. That's not how this is going to work. Would you move other moving parts involved? Oh, the other thing I wanted to say, and you made this great point, they have this flexibility. It's basically all conditional because their cap space is sub-max if they, if they really want to, you know, get rid of everything they need to, to um, inflate that number as high as possible. They're probably looking at, I don't know, like almost, let's say 24 million in space. You can then dump salaries to get to like a max for DeAndre Ayton if you want to go the sign and trade route um, and figure that base year compensation out with Phoenix. At the same time, you then you're punting on the Jeremy Grant trade exception that you have. And so like, I call it the Jeremy Grant trade exception because it's perfectly sized for Jeremy Grant. Like you, you're not having both here. You have to operate basically as an over the cap team. If you want to keep that trade exception. So their, their flexibility is very conditional where it's like, you can't have it all for them. I wanted to throw to you. Would you give up the number seven pick in a deal that got you Rudy Gobert or a deal that gets you Brogdon and miles Turner? I probably would in either of those instances, partially just because I am lower on this draft class, but also because 
selfishly, I, I want to see Dame stay in a Portland Trailblazers uniform. He's one of those players that feels so attached to a city. And, you know, I, you know, player autonomy is great and fully promote that. But also, like, I love the idea of these legitimate superstars staying in one jersey forever. And if there's a chance for that to happen because there's an immediate move of that caliber, we're talking about something way better than Jeremy Grant with either of those situations. With Rudy Gobert, all of a sudden, you have a great rim-rolling threat who completely transforms what Portland can do on defense. And the same is true with the Indiana Pacers move, just albeit on a lower scale with Turner, who also gives you some pop and you're picking up Brogdon in that deal, who is very much a jack-of-all-trades, can fit alongside Dame. So in either instance, I think the reward is worth the risk. I would be curious what the Rudy Gobert deal needs to look like just for you, because with Utah, if you're giving up Gobert, you're not getting better, but I also don't know that you're trying to rebuild. And I'm just still assuming that Gobert's in Charlotte already. (laughs) Uh, You're going to make a lot of people in Atlanta mad with that comment. Uh, So I think I'm with you too. I would do both instances. I'm a little bit more if you're on the Pacers one, because I don't love the Brogdon extension anymore, but you can pair him with Simons and Dame and that's fine. Then you have Josh Hart there, presumably still, but Turner's coming up on his next contract. And then is Nurk all of a sudden just you're letting him walk for nothing, I guess, in, in either of those scenarios? Or are you keeping Turner and Nurk? Is there a sign and trade for Nurk? My bonus question really quickly was, do you think Anthony Simons is getting max or near max money in restricted free agency? I don't think so. I think I'm it's like, a tier or two short. I'm like, I'm just wondering if the, I guess, so the Pistons falling to five hurts this theory. I actually wonder if they become a DeAndre Ayton suitor now because mm-hmm. they miss out on all those bigs. I thought they might have been a team. Just him next to Cunningham would have been super interesting. I will say I'm kind of with you in the sense that there's just not enough money out there. And so unless it's going to be Detroit, Indiana, Orlando, or um, or San Antonio, I don't know which of those teams. Detroit might, but if they're going to draft Jay and Ivy, they shouldn't. Uh, they don't have the incentive. I really don't think Simons is like the – Simons and DeJounte Murray would be like a really – intriguing backcourt but you have you have they kind of have like this overstock of swingmen slash wings already with facel josh primo is there trey jones emerged so and they just don't that's not san antonio's game but let's go max out or near max out this other team's free agent unless he's lamarcus aldridge apparently so uh and orlando just has so much of everything such a glut everywhere right and a lot of it is guard so to go after simons would be a little bit weird but it wouldn't surprise me if he just signs a deal with like, let's set the over under on his salary. His max could be 30.5. I'm going to say 22 million. I was coming in around 24. So over So a little over, over. unless he decides to go to the Lakers on the mini mid level. (laughs) Go the Malik, the Malik Monk route, but make a little bit more money than Malik Monk did. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Who's our next team. Next up, we have the Sacramento Kings and I'm going to go the easy route here and just ask, where is Rashawn Holmes going to be traded to? Because he is on the books for $11.2 million next year. His contract runs through 2024-25 with a player option for that final year. It's pretty clear that they're committed to DeMontis Sabonis and De'Aaron Fox, which worked better than I expected uh, at the tail end of this past season. It looks like there is legitimately something to build around there as they gain more comfort Holmes is only going to be phased out of a primary spot within the rotation even more. Uh, Harrison Barnes is still there to absorb a lot of the the minutes at the four. He can play some small ball five when Sabonis isn't on the floor. So Holmes needs a different home. I think that's, 
that's pretty clear. We thought that he was going to be commanding a lot more money last offseason. Charlotte was easily our favorite destination. Are they still in play? Are other teams going to get in the mix? Because Holmes is still a legitimately good, impactful player, even if he's not DeMontis Sabonis. Also, really quickly, because we haven't addressed it on the podcast, and I feel we are not saying the off-court stuff with his, uh, I think it's his girlfriend and his son. I just feel whatever the truth is there, I feel terrible for his son. It seems like he's been through a lot. So hopefully his son's okay. And everything we're saying about Rashawn Holmes has only everything to do about what's going on uh, basketball-wise. Just wanted to throw that caveat out there. I think I'm with you in the sense Charlotte, Dallas would be a really good fit for him, and Toronto are teams that I could see going after him. And maybe it doesn't take, you know, the Kings have kind of hurt his trade value. His contract is still so good, but by having Sabonis, you've made him superfluous and our team's going to lowball you there. This falls under the umbrella of my question. What the fuck are the Kings going to do is, was my actual question. And I have, I think anyone who listens to this podcast. That's just like a state of being for the Kings. We, they are in a perpetual state of existential crisis. That is, (laughs) that is the Sacramento Kings. We've, we do not typically gobble the low-hanging fruit with the Kings on this podcast. I want to make that clear. Everyone eat, binge eat away at the low-hanging fruit. They deserve it at this point. And I don't know what they do here. They've tethered themselves to this weird timeline, and it's just hysterical that they landed in the number four spot, which that's a huge asset. Jay Nivey with De'Aaron Fox and Davion Mitchell, I'm not a big proponent of drafting for fit. I would go best player available. So I would take Jay Ivey and I wouldn't think twice about it, but like the Kings have tied themselves to this more urgent timeline to where, well, you have to care a little bit because what happens there. And that's not the cleanest fit with Fox and Sabonis. And so Ivy's going to be a developmental project anyway. And so, I mean, in theory, you could say, oh, well then we'll get to bring him along slowly because Fox and Sabonis are there. That's not how the Kings are going to operate. It's also, what are you grooming him for to take De'Aaron Fox's job? It's like De'Aaron Fox is not 35 years old. I'm just curious, and I know we said we didn't want to talk about the draft, but are they going to either – is this a trade-down scenario for them? Or are they – and this would have been fair game regardless – are they trying to use that pick to materially upgrade, I would say, the wing rotation? Mm. And the issue there – and I, I scoured, like, the potential wing market. I don't even know what prospective deals are going to be worth giving up what would be the number four pick. So it feels like they're, they're going to be in a, a situation of, oh, they're probably better off – trading down i saw some people float like john collins for the number four pick i don't know if john collins is worth that in a vacuum he's not worth that to the king you just traded for for sabonis and he, you're not you know miles turner you're not going to go after him after you just trade for sabonis he's also <laughs> that would be worth. amazing though that would can be, you ima- can you imagine it would potentially be the most king's move ever though it would be they, I've saw, seen people mention, could they be a sneaky Rudy Gobert destination? That is, you free Sabonis from playing with another big, only to play him beside another big who's an even worse offensive fit next to him. So no, you don't do that. I just, and he clearly doesn't fall under the, the wing umbrella there. So I don't know. There are other moves they can make. They're not, they shouldn't be a cap space team unless they, unless they dump other salary. What is their mid-level exception? Get them. What are they going to do with their draft picks? It does feel like there's going to be a significant trade here and that it's going to be a buy. I don't see them wanting to move Rashawn Holmes strictly to get spare parts or future assets. That's not the timeline on which they're operating. And so I asked, my question was, what the fuck are they going to do? Because I'm honestly just at a loss for 
there's all these different options available to them, but none of them seem to coalesce into whatever the, the hazy bigger picture they've assembled here is. And I just, that number four pick, it feels like the draft is going to start with them. Like they are the first wild card. And I, well, it's, I a, just, it's a three player top tier. So of course the Kings have the number four pick, but you know, even if they had, I don't even know if I want to go there. That's just too mean to the Kings. I think you know where I was going. I, I think I do, which is why I'll carry us right along. It's just like, I, I'm, I'm again, I'm at a loss. Don't know really what, and you, I'm even stumbling through it now because of the, the lead in that you, the thing that you just teased. <laughs> I'm just like, do they even have the, are, like, are they the team that's just going to keep the pick and then not draft who the obvious player at number four feels like he is? Because they're not going to get the benefit of the doubt if they go with Shane Sharp at number four. That's the, they're not going right. to be the team that gets the benefit of the doubt there. Right. Just put it in the bag. I mean, bag. So I don't, I just don't even know. It feels like the more prudent move would be to explore the trade down scenarios just because it doesn't look like the market for what they need is a name that I floated just because his, I don't want to say his fit, but his future is a little bit more murky in Toronto is OG Ananobi. Just with the emergence of Scotty Barnes, we sort of saw our OG stagnate on offense. I think in part because of the, the roster construction. Mm-hmm. Is there something there? Rashawn Holmes and number four for OG? Is that too much? Does Toronto say, whoa, so we're going to get number four and supposed to draft someone who stands under six, seven. <laughs> I don't. So I don't, I don't know, but like, I can't come up with a deal that makes sense for the number four pick. That's, that's for an actual player. There are a bunch of different trade down scenarios that, that you could look at for sure. Yeah. I would, I would rather them try to trade down to get more picks. You know, just let's, let's take some more flyers in this class, because even if it's weak at the top, there should be a lot of rotation players throughout the back half of the first round, the top half of the second round. Yeah. I could like, would they do something? I feel like this maybe isn't like the Spurs, if the Spurs offered number nine, and people are going to laugh because he's become a meme, but Josh Richardson and then something else because Josh Richardson was really good for them and was having a solid season uh, before he was traded from uh, Boston anyway. But like maybe that's a team that could look at doing it. I know that Charlotte has two first, but who, who are they giving the Kings? That's right. where it gets weird. Is even when you look at the teams that I could see maybe wanting to trade up to number four, uh, can the Pacers actually do anything for you? I'm sure they are just pissed that they didn't end up in the top four here. Brogdon and what? Brogdon and six. And I think you would need something else there too. I'm not even gonna lie. So I don't think you would. You don't? I don't think no. Brogdon, Brogdon's not like a you this team needs a wing. And like Yeah, but I I'm not sure that moving down from four to six matters that much in this class. Well then fair enough. But then if you're the Kings, I guess I don't know. Like I said, I don't see the the options there, even when you get into the yeah. trade down stuff with teams that have interest. So Sacramento's offseason, it's always like chaotically fascinating, detrimentally fascinating. I think on more of a, a higher level here, a deeper level, it's just fascinating for so many reasons because of what it's going to say about mm-hmm. their philosophy, their timeline. And then of course the other players that are currently on this roster, what it says yeah. about them. Last but not least, we have the San Antonio Spurs. And my question here, is there a building block in San Antonio other than DeJounte Murray? ton of intriguing players. Keldon Johnson, the energy that he brings crashing to the rim and serving as like a secondary scorer, really impressive. Yaka Pertle, good defensive anchor. I think they should bring back Lonnie Walker. Devin Vassell showed that there was more juice to his game, especially in the second half of the season. You still have Josh Primo, Trey Jones emerged towards the, the back half of the schedule. Are any of them like building blocks? Because if they're not, that's an awful lot 
of good, not great players when there should be a little bit more urgency around a version of DeJounte Murray that hit like full-fledged stardom this last season. I am with you there. And it's probably an oversimplification to say DeJounte Murray can't be the best player on a championship team. There are like 10 players who maybe fit, maybe 10 that fit that bill. And so what the Spurs I think are tasked with are kind of finding DeJounte Murray's equal or someone who perhaps makes him a 1B. And so you're asking, is anyone on the roster going to come close to that? think so i think i think Vassell would have the best chance and he would have Maybe. to take sort of the Kawhi leonard route of his offense really coming we saw him get more ball screens after the trade deadline but i don't know and you could even argue just because he's more mystery box like is josh primo have a better chance of being that player all of which might be to say they don't have that player on the right. roster right now and as much as it's the spurs i don't think you bank on them getting it at number nine and that's just probably not how do you build out from here? Because you could argue that they are a consolidation uh, candidate. And we see, look, they've been a little bit more willing to make moves. The DeMar DeRozan sign and trade. They flipped Derek White at the deadline. They would be a very, and I know DeJounte Murray tweeted this out, a Photoshop picture of Zach Levine's Spurs jersey and then deleted it. Respect to him for tweeting that out, though. They are a fun Zach Levine team for me. I think you could argue they might need defense a little bit more, but they also don't have the level of shot maker that Zach Levine is. And I'm talking about someone who's also flying around off the ball as well, because he's become like the quintessential dual threat, whereas he will hit these tough jumpers and it's not even a dual. He's an every level scorer basically, but it scales to both on the ball and off the ball. And they have a bunch of players who I think can score fine on the ball can score fine off the ball. They don't have someone who can score on ball like Zach Levine. And completely if, agree. And I think for the same reason, Bradley Beal, this is a sneaky, fun landing spot for him. I, I would agree. But do you think, I, I guess you wouldn't care about going for quote unquote age when Zach Levine's not that much younger than Bradley Beal and DeJounte Murray's not exactly young anymore either. Uh, what you get into the issue of is that Zach Levine has to want to leave. It, it feels like it would almost be easier to get Bradley Beal as much mm-hmm. as he's come out and said he wants to be watching than Levine because the Bulls have sort of married themselves to wanting to win now. And so Zach Levine has to really want out of Chicago where I think there's a better chance. doesn't mean it's likely that Washington could say it's really time for us to go in a different direction because yep. we have the number 10 pick. What are we supposed to do with that to, to build around you? And so that would be a super fun destination. My question, which I guess could fall under this umbrella as well. How do they use their cap space, which can, I think they, they, there's a chance that they end up having the most cap space in the NBA. Uh, they can get up to, if they really want to maximize it, like almost 30 million at this point, there's Orlando and Detroit and even India, the potential to get more, but they have to take additional steps to get there. They are the team just based off like the extra you know, step or that they would need to take to get like the actual max if they decided to get rid of Zach Collins, mm-hmm. or is this just, can we find a, a destination for Romeo Langford, move his money? Are they a team that would go after one of these RFAs? And I'm saying Miles Bridges or DeAndre Ayton. And I'd probably say no. Like, I don't think that they're going to like take a huge swing in free agency, whether, and that would pertain to Zach Levine and Bradley Beal as well, even if sign and trade possibilities are on the table. Yeah. I, I struggle to see any of those restricted free agents really working out for this team. And once you, you move past that level, Miles Bridges, are you going to throw a ton of money at him? And like, 
Charlotte probably really, matches, right? They're I would trapped. think so. Yeah. And I don't, even if they did, I don't know that it really like elevates you as much as you need. What if, what if Kyrie Irving or James Harden turned down their deals and look for, for new contracts? Feasibly Irving is a, is a good fit alongside Murray. I don't know what to make of Harden at this stage. Do you want to even deal with the headaches? Probably not. I can't imagine a rigid disciplined system like San Antonio going after Kyrie Irving right now, but like the, the options are just so limited. This feels like one of those off seasons are like, congrats on having your cap space. Good luck using it next year. I, I do wonder if they could inflate the market on shorter term deals for some of like the, the second or third tier free agents. Like, could they be a, if they want Tyus Jones, or if you're looking at guys like Gary Harris, who rebooted his value or Victor Oladipo rebooted his value, or I guess you could throw a ton of like Colin Sexton. I don't know. I guess I don't mind his fit here, but they just feel so guard heavy where it's like, it's exactly like, like, why are you bringing back Lonnie Walker? Right. And so this would lead to the question of if you're not, and it's fair to say that they're not just because the options to, and who's the, we could talk about a consolidation trade. The question, who, Right. It's just Jeremy like, Grant. I'm, I feel, <laughs> I feel like I am normally pretty good at spotting, even if it's not the obvious star or high end player that could want out next. And I just look up and down the NBA right now, and I'm like, I just don't see that guy. Maybe I'm too high on like every team or the situation that they're in. I just don't know who that surprise mm-hmm. smack you in the face player is going to be. So what does, what does leaning further into this rebuild? Because right now I call it a build. I wouldn't even call it a rebuild. Right, My, right. Another question would be, what does leaning further into it, if they want to do it, look like? Because, like, if you're trading Jakob Pertl and Josh Richardson, I, I think Jakob Pertl makes you substantially worse. But I do get to the question of, like, well, why are you moving Jakob Pertl? He's so cheap. And, you know, maybe he makes a lot in his next contract, but maybe he doesn't. He's not a player that I think you cry over should he leave for a ton more money. And the only way to actually lean further into it, and I don't think you do, and I'll make that clear, is do you make DeJounte Murray available? Is he the player that we haven't given enough thought to? I just don't see them doing that to pop or even to him because of how much they value the, the homegrown talent. They are maybe the toughest team to peg for the offseason. Just to look at, well, what are they? I know we just had what the that. fuck are the Kings going to do. The Spurs are in a similar boat, albeit I would say. Is, is it even a more enviable boat? I would say Maybe I think this is this is the byproduct of trying to skirt two eras. Like you end up in this this treadmill of slightly above mediocrity, where you're too good to to get the high end prospects, but you're you're not good enough to really compete, and it's really tough to escape that. And I think the Spurs maybe were undervaluing some of the developmental projects on their roster or maybe their ability to mine talent at a spot like number nine in this draft. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it's fair to start asking those questions. They've they're like in a pleasant mediocrity right now because they finally moved on from the yeah. the post Kawhi era where they had to rose and it felt like they were even more trapped. So they're not stuck. I might argue the Kings are more stuck because of what they're gonna have to do with Sabonis, his next contract, what they owe Fox. I think I would disagree just because Sabonis and Fox give you higher upside than Murray alone does. I mean, that's, that's probably fair, but the Spurs just, wouldn't you, the Spurs are built better to make the consolidation trade if an opportunity arises yes. in Sacramento right now. Yes, absolutely. But there's, I think there's a scenario in which 
Sacramento just breaks out. If Sabonis, Sabonis and Fox totally click, if Davion Mitchell explodes as a sophomore, Harrison Barnes is still there. You have some depth across the board. I don't think it's too far-fetched that they actually make some postseason noise. Wow. I'm unlikely. Sorry. Unlikely. But, I mean, if you're looking at, like, the distribution of outcomes, San Antonio probably has a higher mean, median outcome, but it tails off a little quicker. I think Sacramento's, like, true peak rises a little bit higher than San Antonio's does right now. It's but, just unlikelier that, they get, that it gets there. I'm going to throw very couple quick scenarios at you. If these opportunities arise, are the Spurs a good destination for these players? What if the, what if the jazz or he has for out, what if Donovan Mitchell becomes available? The idea of a Murray Donovan Mitchell backcourt. I don't really love that one just because Mitchell has become such a black hole on defense where just no, there's nothing there. What about Damian Lillard? If you can get him, Go do it. I'd say that about any team. I want to make it clear. I think this is a situation in Portland where you they're going to continue onward until Dame says stop. And he hasn't said stop. But just if he becomes available, I wouldn't. I know he's older, but like I wouldn't mind the Spurs if you're keeping Murray as part of that. Let's yeah. Let's see what Pop can do with with Dame. We both already said yes to Zach Levine and Bradley Beal. I guess that would mean. And look, that's like that's like where I'm at. With I thought about what if things Jeremy Grant. why are you calling Jeremy Grant a star right now? I don't know. Uh, The final one would be just, and I don't think you do it, but like, what if Phoenix is just like, everything's gone to shit and they're like, okay, Chris Paul is like, we're going to move on from Chris Paul. He's great on the teammates. If you can get him without giving up like material value, I would love him in San Antonio as well, but you'd prefer Devin Booker if things are going to go upside down in Phoenix. Suns fans, I'll make it clear. I don't think it's getting to that point. Nor do I. That will wrap us up. We did all seven teams. Um, thank you, everyone, for listening. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to us if you haven't done so already. First-time listeners, consider throwing us that permanent subscription. Uh, we think that you'll enjoy the content that we continue to put out. Follow us on the socials, the links and handles to which are in the podcast description. Uh, follow us on YouTube, youtube.com. Search Hardware Knox will come up. I do post. We do post organic content on YouTube ig and tiktok right now so there are reasons to follow us there and join our discord where we have tons of fun the link to that is in the podcast description as well until next time we need to shout out the one the only the best of the best conference finals x-factors in frank milikina